0: You ever see someone powerful get away with things they should not get away with and face zero accountability? There's something about that that strikes us, doesn't it? From liars who host late-night TV show programs to politicians who go into office with regular income but somehow come out multimillionaires, it raises questions. From high ranking law enforcement not held accountable for corruption to media heads not accountable for the doubt and division they create through false narratives. It bothers us. Sometimes we have to turn off the news just to get our head right and our hearts right and our anxiety down. We are hardwired within instinctive sense of fairness. That fairness matters. Often we do fail to see our own slanted view of things as it pertains to fairness, but regardless, there's something in us, everyone in this room that has a sense of fairness. How much does it matter that God is fair? What if God's forgiveness came at the expense of his fairness what if he could only forgive by having favorites or by winking at wrongdoing what if he was more like us in that way well it would matter desperately the moral fabric of the universe would tear in pieces if God were not fair you know you can see it in us as a culture from the from the crowd watching a football game where the referees call is garbage to the work to workers watching incompetent colleagues promoted in the workplace we are hardwired with an instinctive sense of fairness that matters how relieved we are when justice triumphs and how outraged when it, you know corruption is prevailing or let's say an election is corrupted or a criminal escapes or a wrong is never righted we need to know that god cannot be mocked and that he does not do what he tells human judges never do to pervert justice you can count on god not to do that but if god is fair how can he forgive this morning i want to invite you to open to maybe one of the top 3 top 5 most important passages in all of the bible I cannot oversell it. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 21 through 26 this morning. And as you're turning there, it's on page 999, 999. It's easy to remember this morning, the Pew Bible text uh, page. As you're turning there, let me give some background. Romans is a letter from the Apostle Paul. And he was a missionary also seeking to saturate others in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this group of Jews, and particularly this group of Jews and Gentiles, congregated here in Rome. And he wanted to encourage them, to equip them, to unify them, and ultimately to mobilize them in the gospel. He wanted to advance the gospel. He had to make clear that everyone needs Jesus the same way. The pagan Gentiles appear to be in more need to some, but Paul takes all of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3 to help ethnic Jews understand that they're just as much in need of Christ as the Gentiles are indeed of Jesus. And so it's easy to think about those first three chapters. Everybody needs Jesus because all are under sin. The Jews had the great advantages of God's special revelation in the scriptures, but their failure to obey it left them with the same culpability as the Gentiles. Their assets, the scriptures, had actually become a liability if they did not understand that they, they're justified through faith in Christ, just like everybody else. So Romans 2 really reveals that Jewish assets were liabilities. Their own sin before God nullified their ceremonial righteousness. You can dress it up. You can go through the ceremonies. It doesn't make you right with God. And so we left off a few weeks ago in Romans 3, 9 through 20, where Paul used the Old Testament to show them that the Bible taught that all are under sin's dominion and condemnation. Everyone has evil in their hearts and has done evil in word, thought, and deed. Everybody's a sinner. Everyone needs Jesus the same way. Mankind is under sin in the same way. Even the Jews have the privileges of God's word, but they need the righteousness of God. And so Paul's argument is very similar, if you're familiar with the New Testament, to the book of Galatians. God is holy and righteous. Man is not. Man needs God's judicial pardoning and they need his righteousness credited to them to enjoy his glory that was lost in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So Paul comes back to his thesis statement. Remember Paul's thesis statement? Flip look back to Romans chapter 1, you can see it there in verse 16 and 17. Remember, this is the thesis statement of the book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The good news, that's the good news of Christ Jesus. Death on the cross and his resurrection I'm not ashamed of that message because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, excuse me, for in the, for in the righteousness of God, for in it the, the gift of righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith just as it, is, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So chapter 3, if you're marking up your Bible, if you're someone who likes to make notes in your Bible, you can put a star somehow, you can write, rewrite Romans 1, uh, but chapter 3, that we're, which we're in this morning, was going, is going now to expound upon those two verses. He's going to further clarify, just in case you miss what he's saying, uh, his thesis statement in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. So hear now God's holy word. And before I read, just remember, before we make this sharp turn into chapter 3, verse 21, let's get a, let me, I'm going to do something different here. Let's back up again. I want you to feel the momentum. Look back at chapter 3, verse 9. Let's start there. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave that deceives with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth might be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so he would be just and Justify the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. Amen. Note the public nature of the text. Public revelation abounds. Five places here. Verse 21, righteousness of God has been revealed, manifested, just like it was in chapter 1, verse 17. The law and prophets testify to it. Again, public Verse 25, God put forward Christ. He demonstrates in a public display. Verse 25, He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. And it's repeated again in verse 26. So, in great contrast, Paul shows how God's gift, it's a gift. His righteousness in this context is a gift. He's not talking about God's righteous character, which God is. He's talking about something here a gift of righteousness is awarded separate from law-keeping to his people through Jesus, to all who believe, verse 21 and 22. This is great for any sinner because it's freely given by grace through the redemption purchased through Christ, in verses 23 and 24. And how does our righteous God accomplish this righteously? How does he maintain his own righteousness and justice he gives his son to pay for sin and the sins of all who believed prior to his coming and who would go, who would pray, who would believe upon him after demonstrating his justice upon Jesus. And justification would be given to the one who puts faith in Christ. The text plainly teaches that righteousness before God comes to believers entirely, entirely and only from Jesus. It comes to the faith of Jesus Christ, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It comes by his propitiation, the mercy seat. It comes to the one based on the faith, uh, faith in Jesus. None of God's past actions and none of the Old Testament promises make any logical sense apart from Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul is arguing that here. Here's a central point. <clears throat> Thank God for he justifies believers freely by his grace alone in Christ alone. Thank God for he justifies believers freely by his grace alone in Christ alone. Number one, righteous relief. Number one, righteous relief, verses 21 and 22 where I'm going to focus, righteous relief. I wanted to read in Momentum because verse 21 is the relief, going all the way back into chapter, chapter 1, uh, is the relief we've been waiting for as we drowned under the weight of guilt that we have and the evil we have committed against our holy God. These two words, but now, denote a sense of God's gracious Intervention. Thank God for his intervention. I like this illustration. Imagine playing basketball in a city park. Your team is horrible. You just keep getting beat. Then someone says, hey, Steph Curry just showed up. After some discussion, he gets placed on your team. Your team was awful, but now you have hope. Actually, now you have victory. One pastor rightly pointed out the following righteousness is a is a validating performance record which opens doors when you want a job you send in a resume it all has the experiences and skills that you hope that you that make you or you hope make you worthy of a position every religion and culture believes it's the same with god you know they think they have a moral and spiritual resume to show god Maybe you are right now. You're already listing your resume right now in your mind. You're you're probably talking to me. I'm not the judge. You're talking to God. He's the judge. And you're going through your record, your spiritual resume. And you're, you're thinking your life is worthy and that God should accept you. But friends, we've got to see here that Romans has been teaching us our resume is not good enough. It never will be because of sin. And we need an intervention. Get the the drama of the text. Paul comes along and says, but now. Think about that. Think about the team that just got changed dramatically. For the first time in history, proof of God's gift of righteousness has been revealed in the person of Jesus. A divine righteousness. The righteousness of God. A perfect record is given to us who believe. All things have changed. The tide has changed, far bigger than any little illustration I can give you. Before God Almighty, Christ can change it all for you who believe. You know, no other place, no other religion offers this. Outside of the gospel, we have to develop a righteousness. That resume. And offer to God and say, hopefully, anxiously, accept me. The gospel says that God has provided a perfect righteousness. And he offers it to it, to it, to us, and by it we are accepted through Christ. This is the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. And it reverses what every other religion and worldview and every human heart believes. Secular humanism, critical theory, Buddhism, Mormonism, Islam, go down the they will all offer you a call to certain works-based righteousness. Christianity says. It will, none of it will work. But there's the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. In an infinitely greater and more important way than any trivial illustration I can give you, Jesus has changed our situation. But now, we were losers and lost without hope. But Christ has done what we could not do for ourselves. Through our union with him, we will not perish but have victory over death. And so God's intervention in Jesus Christ gives us hope, gives hope to any sinner who would repent and believe. Let's look at the text together. But now in the giving of Christ Jesus, apart from the law, look at verse 21, apart from obeying the commandments, the law detects sin. Remember, it pronounces death sentence. Grace alone, though, liberates one from sin and offers righteousness by faith. Only God can counteract the wrath of God. You understand that? Only God can counteract the wrath, the righteous response against sin of God. And he has acted. But now he has acted apart from our law keeping to liberate us from the power of sin and deliver us from divine wrath. Look at the text, the righteousness, that's a legal gift and crediting of God to sinners has been revealed by the way, those here, attested by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, remember, points and testifies not to rule keeping to be made right with God, but through the gift of the promised Messiah who would suffer in our place for our sins. And so in typical fashion here, as Paul writes, he insists that God's new work in Christ here is moving beyond the old era of the Mosaic law as God said he would. It's what God has planned to do all along. It was revealed in the Old Testament, guys, Paul saying it was there the whole time. And so let me emphasize this. Don't miss this, church. The Old Testament teaches about the saving righteousness of God. You know that. That's why I started the service off this morning from Genesis talking about Abraham. The cross was never plan B, but it was always plan A. The gospel does not introduce a new kind of righteousness that was not available before Christ. It shows clearly why the righteousness that that, that put Abraham and David and others right before God was indeed a right kind of righteousness. That God had been right to do it that way. To credit them, to gift them righteousness through faith. The Old and New Testament teach the same message of salvation. And so Paul's getting ready to to use Abraham in the next chapter to prove this point that I'm arguing right now. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith. That's trust, faith, belief in God's gift in Christ. Not by ritual observances, not by your record-keeping of your good works. They do not obligate God to you whatsoever because you've broken his law. No, it's only in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, the phrase literally reads, the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, some say it means the faithfulness of Christ that we're saved, which is true. We are saved By his righteousness, because we're unfaithful, but I think the CSB and most of your translations get it correct here because throughout Romans, it's the importance of faith that saturates the book. So, faith in Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the text, wonderful news. Look at 22 to all who believe. And anybody can believe. As Billy Graham used to say, an old person can believe, a young person can believe, anybody can believe by God's grace. To all who believe, and that implies that to all who do not believe, if you do not believe on Jesus, you do not have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're in your unrighteousness. If you have not put your hope completely on Jesus, the way you are resting in that pew this morning, trusting it will hold you up. if You're not trusting in Christ. You're trusting in yourself. And you do not have the righteousness of God. You have to turn from self-trust and put your trust in Jesus. Since there is no distinction, everyone needs Jesus the same way. So beloved, relief is here for sinners. If you can hear me this morning, God loves you. God cares about you. He has chosen to love even though we are very unlovely in our evil ways. Inside everyone in this room, and don't sit there and shake your head like it's not in your heart. Inside everyone in this room is a desire to ask, what must I do to be saved? We want to earn it. We want it to be owed to us and we won't praise from that. But the perfect righteousness of God will not allow for it. Our sins are too many. One sin is enough to condemn us before God's perfect throne. And not to mention, we do not have, but there's never been anyone who's had but one mere sin. We have too many to count that include the ways we have not worshipped God, but we worshipped ourselves. The ways we have used his name in vain and in blasphemy. The ways we reject God's design for the home. The ways we reject God's word as it pertains to laziness. The ways we have failed to love him with all our hearts. The ways we have not told the truth or stolen, and or we've chosen to steal, or envy, or grumble, lust, hated with malice, gossip, slandered people made in God's image. We have not upheld the law. Instead, we have broken it all over the place. We have not upheld the law. We've ignored the spirit of the law while putting on a show for others to think that we are good and nice. I'm a nice person. Thank you, pastor. You're unrighteous in God's sight if you don't have Christ. We are corrupt from within and it's seen before God Almighty. The law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament were not written to call us to try and justify ourselves before God. They are given to expose our evil within and show we need righteousness from God given to us the same way that he gave it to Abraham. And that is by faith in his son to save us through his merits, not our own. So here's some application. Feel this morning the power of the phrase, but now. God has ushered in the solution that offers every person access to a new standing before God before it's too late. So maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Today's the day you believe on the Lord Jesus. Today's the day you say, Jesus, I need you. Change my life. I don't want to go to hell. Because I believe you died and rose for me. I believe you will change me. Cry out to Christ and he will receive you. Here's another application today. Thank God for the gift of righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. Today, another application. Praise God for the, the perspicuity of the scripture, how scripture is analogous to itself. It's always been saying the same thing. Jesus has loomed large over the Old Testament as you read it. Friends, read the Old Testament. You can't help but see how it's setting you up to put your trust in Messiah Christ, Jesus, alone for salvation, for your cleansing, and to have eternal life with God. I love it, as one author put it, a messianic wind blows through the pages of the God-breathed scriptures. And if you're not reading the Bible through this year, I would encourage you to do it. And some texts are clearly, obviously messianic, found in promises and and visions and experiences and victories. They're all like flashing light points to an emergency exit. As you read your Bible, look for those flashing lights. Oh, run to Christ. Put your trust in Jesus. Church today, ask yourself, you're currently boasting in your heart about yourself or in Jesus. Today, don't you desire more joy in Christ? Can't you see it comes in resting in what he's done for you, that he loves you? Don't you desire to stop being a self-righteous jerk? It comes through boasting in the work of Christ. I love it how Spurgeon talked about dealing with criticism. And he reflected on the way, like, I'm really worse than they could possibly know. If you really know me, you know I was a lot worse. Yeah, the gospel frees us to have that kind of humility. Don't you desire more joy? It comes through seeing that salvation is all of God's unmerited favor, his grace towards us. Thank God for he justifies believers freely by his grace alone and Christ alone. Number two, another R, redeeming grace. Redeeming Grace, verses 23 through 24. I hate to do this to you on Sunday morning before lunch, but here I go. I, like many of you, enjoy steak. Can I get an amen? Amen, amen. there we go. I haven't made a steak I didn't enjoy. Um, I'm more partial to the filet for some reason. That's just my thing. I I love them all, though. Ever been at a barbecue where the meat just keeps coming? Maybe at a friend's house? You know, here's some brisket. You know, here's some ribs. You know, they just keep it like, my goodness. That's what Romans is like theologically. Paul just keeps putting choice meats on our theological platter. And this text is, there's no way I will ever feel satisfied preaching this sermon because there's just so much good meat in it. Look at the text in 23, 24. Why is there no distinction between people? Why is it that everyone needs Jesus? Why does it not matter what your last name is, how much money you have, what what degrees you have earned? Whatever, whatever traditions and ceremonies you have walked through, why does it not matter? For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23, that's why. All have disobeyed God. That's what that means. All have transgressed his majesty and rule. All have sinned. All are evil in his holy and pure sight. All have missed the mark that God intended for the human race and have lost the glory of the original creation. Believing the good news starts the process, though, friends, of the restoration unto glory. We have exchanged, though, as Romans says, the glory of God and pursued created things. We were created, though, to love God. You were made in His image to love and delight in Him. But because of sin, we lack the glory to enjoy Him in our corruption. Because all people without exception sinned in Adam, we are now sinners by nature and by choice. That's coming up for us in Romans 5. And as a result, we are all lacking the glory. The glory image of God. You ever wonder why so many Pursue glory today and something, what I mean by that, something larger than themselves. Think about maybe a cause or a team or whatever it is. There's something about us to pursue something larger than ourselves. And there's something I want to speak to there in the image of God in you. You were made to enjoy God, and He has placed, as the scripture says, eternity in your hearts. As one author put it, Romans 3:23 is the bottom line explanation. For while we pack stadiums for football games, pay thousands of dollars for liposuction, and meet with psychologists to plumb the depths of the haunting sense of shame we feel, we lack glory and we know it. At every turn in everyday life, we see evidence of the truth that we know deep within, that we have lost our true glory, our real selves. We feel keenly our sense of alienation from who we are, were destined to be. We seek to fill that void any way we can, even vicariously through enjoying the glory of others. And the message of the gospel from the perspective here is that in Christ, glory can be given back to us. We can be restored to God. I want to say this this morning. You will never know satisfaction and rest and peace separate from Christ. Even as Christians, we can impair God's graces to us we can be walking in a way where we are under uh, ang- further anxieties because we have turned our eyes off Jesus temporarily. We need Jesus, and he restores us. Verse 24. Verse 24 is, uh, I had one friend who illustrated like this. So verse 23, let's read it again. Look at that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you're thinking about this from a volleyball standpoint, No, you're setting the ball. Someone's hitting it and setting it. Verse 24 is the spike. It is the crushing mark here. It is the crushing hit to score the point. They are justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The Greek word that we are dealing with here means to declare righteous. This is not merely to pardon, by the way. Paul is not talking about God's declaration of what he finds in us and in our behavior. He's talking about something else altogether. He's already declared us to be guilty beyond hope in our works and merits and, you know, put it in quote, goodness. But justification is a legal term, a formal acquittal from guilt by God as judge. Pronouncing righteousness and granting righteousness to the believing sinner, the verb is in the present continuous tense, and indicates a constant process of justification in in the succession of those who believe and are justified. I just want to drive home the permanency of it. I like how Wayne Grudem put it, justification is is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight, end quote. That's That's a great way to put it. Let me illustrate here. <clears throat> you know, there's a, difference, uh, uh, there's a difference between being forgiven and being justified. And I don't want to separate forgiveness is also inside of justification, but there is a difference between the two. Suppose a woman were to incur a debt at a branch store of a local company over and above her means to pay. If, after hearing her case, the store were to cancel her debt, that would be forgiveness. And under these circumstances, the woman would be no longer liable for the account, but would always have a feeling of personal discomfort about the whole transaction. But if, on the other hand, the legal department of the company decided to press for payment, well, that would be justice. Suppose that while awaiting trial for her undischarged account, the woman were to marry the wealthy son of the store owner who personally assumed responsibility for her account and paid it in full. There would be no legal claim against her anymore. And in the unlikely event of her case ever getting to court, she could plead not guilty to all charges on the grounds that her debts had been fully paid by her husband. The court would say she was justified in pleading not guilty and her case would be dismissed. If a person is to be forgiven, he must plead guilty and sue for mercy. If a person is to be justified, he must plead not guilty and show that opposition has no case against him at all. Of course, forgiveness and justification enter into our salvation. but it It's the higher truth of justification that Paul's presenting right here to you in Romans. Jesus paid your debt in full. And in him, in him our husband, the, the, the husband of the, we're the bride. He's the husband. Use that metaphor. He's paid it all. And we just say not guilty through him, not through ourselves. God treats believers just as if they had never sinned through Christ. Verse 24, verse 24, the meats just keep coming. It's just delicious. Freely by his grace through the redemption. 24, verse 24, the redemption means to ransom by payment of a price. Its usage is primarily from the slave market in the ancient world. Slaves could be bought out of slavery by the payment of a price an individual or a country. And the New Testament uses this word to express the freeing of someone from the slavery to sin, by the payment of the ransom price, the blood of Christ. Our judgment was, part of our judgment was that we were given over to sin, enslaved in sin. As Paul and Jesus said we are, we were slaves to sin. And only there's only one liberator in the Bible, true liberator, it ain't Moses, it ain't David, it's Jesus. And he's not just the leader-liberator, he's also the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. And so Paul uses redemption to describe the work of Christ on behalf of believers, that they are bought out of slavery by the death of Christ as the ransom payment. He took on our sin debt as if it was his own. That's what a redeemer does. Notice the words, justified freely and grace. Amen, amen, amen. They summarize the principle whereby God meets ruined man in all of his and her need. Here is an image God gives out his grace like a a fire hydrant bursting forth with water, as someone put it. He dispenses his his, his favor like a billionaire throwing rolls of $100 bills off the top of a hotel balcony. He pours forth his grace like a torrent of raging waters that flows down an empty ravine freely of his grace. The righteousness of God is both free, though, and expensive, freely given, but thoroughly costly in the shed blood of Jesus at Calvary. God justifies sinners by uniting them with Christ through faith, by grace through faith. And God's grace is not won or warranted. It's not earned or enticed. It's not manufactured or merited. It is neither reward nor a wage. It is all of grace, unmerited favor. It is received, not earned. It depends upon faith, as the text says, not not, not good works. It justifies the ungodly, not the well intention, my intentions. You don't even know your intentions like God knows them. He justifies the ungodly, not the well-intentioned. And what makes the good news is that no one would have come up with a plan like this that excluded their own contribution towards a future salvation. Only God could write this. Job asked the question, how can a person be justified before God? Job 9, verse 2. And two answers are given throughout history. The first answer is human achievement. The other answer is divine accomplishment. The gospel is what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. It's not how we can achieve right standing. Jesus gives us a righteousness we do not have that we cannot earn apart from the law. And this saving righteousness is given freely and received by faith. Maybe you're under conviction today and you need to reach out with simple faith and say, I lay hold of what Jesus did. I believe in him. I mean, imagine God as your judge, right? Not comparing yourself to others. Are you aware of your sin? Are you aware of his holiness? Are you aware today that you need to stop looking to yourself and start throwing your hands up to Christ for mercy? God made Jesus to be sin for us. We who believe in him, we be made the righteousness of God in him. God makes the sweetest exchange you will ever know. By faith, you need to receive that Christ Took all your sin upon himself. That was all that guilt was laid upon him as he suffered on that cross and bled and died for you and was raised on the third day for you and is coming again for you. And if you put your trust in that Christ, in this Christ of the Bible, God will give you his righteousness. He will credit that to your account. Oh, come to Christ if you don't know him. Thank God. For he justifies believers freely by his grace alone in Christ alone. Number three, another R, ready? Righteous justification. Righteous justification. When you think of the most heinous, dark crime ever committed or worst evil ever committed, what comes to your mind? Don't answer. Just think about it. There have been a number of things committed that are terrible. But according to God's word, the most outrageous evil in human history is the murder of the perfect, innocent, sinless son of God. Now think with me about a couple of presuppositions here from the Bible. Number one, God is holy and just. Number two, humans are sinners who offend God's holiness and deserve his just wrath in their evil deeds and thoughts and words third presupposition, God forgives and justifies sinners who believe. How can that be? I mean, many flippantly think, of course that's the way it is. God forgives people. That's his job. You could have thought wrongly about God if that's the way you thought about him. So Paul explains here in 25 and 26 how Jesus solves that problem. The problem of evil here. Verse 25, God presented him, Jesus, as the mercy seat by his blood. What in the world, Paul? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know exactly what he's talking about. Well, it shows how the Old Testament, again, points to Jesus and the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. The mercy seat for the Old Covenant is the gold plate, remember, that covered Israel's Ark of the Covenant. It's where the high priest sprinkled blood each year of the Day of Atonement. Jesus is the mercy seat for the New Covenant in, this, in the sense that He is the place where God accomplished final and ultimate propitiation. Maybe your translation says that even the CSB footnotes you see at the bottom of your page, you see the word propitiation. It's the only term related to God saving us for which God is both the subject and the object. That is, God is the one who propitiates. He is the subject of doing the propitiation and God is the one who is propitiated the object receiving the propitiation. Basically what I'm saying is we need to be saved by God from God. God the Son is the propitiation. And God the Father is the propitiated. Jesus' sacrificial death is, by means of his blood, the text says, propitiates the Father's just wrath. And Jesus turns God's wrath against us into favor, into justification. He doesn't merely wipe the slate clean, but he satisfies God's righteous wrath, which says the wages of sin is death, and Jesus turns it into the Father's divine favor. He propitiates the wrath of God. He satisfies the peace is God's righteous wrath. Friends, you've got to understand, uh, as holy God, the Lord cannot and he will not tolerate sin forever. That refusal to tolerate sin is what the Bible uh, uh, calls God's wrath. It's not a mere outpouring of uh, outburst of passion. His anger is not like ours. It's characterized as an essential element in his being. Wrath and love are attributes of the biblical God. And so the Old Testament system, back then the old covenant system, was the grace of God in giving a person a means of acknowledging their reliance on him for forgiveness. And if you know your Old Testament, you know it was done within the innermost part of the Old Covenant tabernacle, right? The place where mercy was found, but only through the proper sacrifice. It was not on full display. It was done in the most holy place. But you notice something here about this text? The sacrifice of Jesus, was it done in some private place? It's on full display, the text says. "It's not put on public. Put on display before all to witness that he died on the cross. And his death is the only place where you and I can find mercy. Have you ever seen yourself approaching the cross where Jesus died in your mind? And bowing at that cross saying, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Because God's wrath was given to him. And is turned away from any who put their trust in Jesus. Praise the Lord. The text says it's here through faith in God's provided lamb. Jesus, for the purpose of demonstrating God's righteousness. There it is again. Because in his restraint, the text says, God's forbearance, rather than destroying every person, the moment or he or she sins, God graciously holds back his judgment. Some of you need to see that wall, that, that damned wall, withholding the waves and the water of God's wrath. It's going to be unleashed upon you and all who refuse to acknowledge and repent towards Christ Jesus. God passed over the sins previously committed. Now let's dive into that. God presented Jesus as a propitiation for two purposes. Look at the text. First, Number one, to demonstrate that God was righteous for leaving the sins of his people who, like Abraham, believed and who believed in Christ who believe in Christ, committed before the cross and left them unpunished. Let me give it. I like illustrations, how about you? Let's use another one, ready? All right. Andy Nassali says like this, Think of me buying gas on credit at the pump. God saved Old Testament saint, Old Testament believers on credit. Just like I entered my card into a machine, they offered sacrifices to God in faith. And just like that, I get the gas. Will they receive genuine forgiveness for sin back then on credit? And just like I received a bill for the gas and pay it, will Christ receive their bill and he paid their debt in full at the cross? Where was Abraham's sins atoned for? At the cross. Where was David's sins covered? Finally and fully paid in full? At the cross, is what Paul's saying. Christ died publicly to demonstrate God's righteousness in saving Old Testament believers on credit. and their faith, they look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. Purpose number two, to demonstrate that God is righteous, to declare that believing sinners are righteous. To demonstrate that God is righteous in declaring that believing sinners are righteous. Verse 26, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness. What Judging him at the cross at the present time so that he would be just. God judging sin in Christ at the cross and justifying the one who has faith in Jesus. Pardoning him, forgiving him, justifying him or her. And so the Bible reveals that God is both judge and he is the most offended party when people sin. So the courtroom illustration, can only goes so far. Like if our, if our judges in our current courtrooms did certain things, well, the, the assumption is is that the judge is not the offended party. It only goes so far. Here, God, the almighty judge, is also the offended one. He never recuses himself, and he's always just, the reason he can justly pronounce believing sinners to be innocent is that Jesus propitiates his righteous wrath. God has paid For the sinners. Justice is served. Propitiation demonstrates that God is righteous when he declares a believing sinner is righteous in his son because Jesus paid for their sins. Has Jesus paid for your sin? Have you trusted in him? God's wrath here is not primitive, is not arbitrary or capricious, but it's holy and righteous response to human sin. You know, Jesus functioned as the priest priest, As the victim and the place where the blood is sprinkled, you know, that shouldn't trouble us. Paul is communicating that Jesus fulfills the sacrificial obligations and fulfillment transcends the old, and in fulfillment of that, he transcends the old covenant rituals. John Stott said, This is the righteous basis on which the righteous God can righteous the unrighteous without compromising his righteousness. End quote. That's why I titled the sermon that way this morning God righteously righteous says, the unrighteous through Christ paying for our debt. In simple terms, the only righteousness sufficient for us to stand before the judgment of God is the righteousness of Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is, the, is only the theological shorthand for the affirmation that justification is by Christ alone, his merits, not ours. We have demerits. He had perfect life and by his righteousness, which is received by faith. So if people were sinless and perfectly, as R.C. Sproul said, obeyed all of God's perfect moral standards, they could be justified, declared righteous on the basis of their own merits. But nobody has. There's only one who's sinless, and his name is Jesus. Let's do some application. This is my last point, by the way. No one in scripture is ever described as being de-justified. Think about that. Justification is objective, not subjective. That is to say it's something done for us, not in us. Hence, justification is forensic, legal, not experiential. It's a legal act, not an emotional feeling. Justification is both exclusive and extensive. There's no middle ground. You either are or you are not justified. Either all your sins are dealt with, past, present, or future, or they are not been dealt with. Justification is also both instantaneous and irreversible. Praise the Lord. We would would find a way to mess it up. It's a... It is a position and status to which we are elevated in Christ. Paul literally says if you've been raised and seated with Christ, if you have put your trust in him, you've been united to him by the Holy Spirit. Justification is not a process. You know, I, you know we disagree with the Vatican big time on this. And they pronounce us condemned because we preach this from God's word. But it is irreversible. It cannot be lost. I cannot dispend little pieces of grace to you to build up your justification so you have less time in purgatory. I can't do that. The Bible doesn't teach that. There is one who can justify you. It's God through Christ. It is irreversible, cannot be lost, and God's verdict will never be appealed to a higher court. It is it. The appeal goes no higher. No wonder Romans chapter 8 33 says this, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Because we have been justified in Christ. The love of justifying grace frees you from the paralyzing burden of guilt. Satan wants to keep you there and you've got to revisit the gospel. No longer do we have to live in regret dragging the heavy load of our past sins into our present and future. No longer do we have to hide in fear of the hammer of God's anger coming down upon us. It fell upon Christ. No longer do we have to Do the burdensome work of of denying and minimizing and hiding our sin and working to make our sin feel in, in our hearts less than it actually is. No longer do we have to defend our righteousness where people near us lovingly confront us with wrong. Redeeming grace has freed us from these burdens. No longer do we have to carry the burden of shame. Jesus shamed shame on the cross, as one author put it. So that we would no longer live in bondage to it in the eyes of the one with whom it eternally matters we are no longer stained scarred because of his justifying grace our record is spotless in christ we through jesus in christ jesus are righteous in god's eyes You say, Pastor, I'm still a sinner. I still sin. You do. And one day you'll sin no more, according to God's promises. But we don't look to ourselves. We're to look to Christ, who took away our sin, past, present, and future. God's justifying grace means that God exercises his sovereign power, not only for his glory, but for our eternal welfare. And his grace in justification means we live under the unshakable security of his provision and his protection. How are you sleeping at night? Don't you know that he took all your sins away? Don't you know you can sing, I bear them no more? Praise the Lord. Justifying grace ushers us out of darkness of fear into the light and rest of the Father's care. Paul Tripp was so helpful in thinking through these applications. Noting freedom from the bondage of guilt, shame, and fear is ours in the justifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We carry these burdens no longer because an act of justifying grace. Jesus has lifted them off of our shoulders. Oh, your shoulders should feel lighter today if you know Jesus. Jesus. What load are you carrying? Your sin? Not if you're in Christ. I should conclude. I do not feel satisfied whatsoever in handling such glorious text from God's word. I think I have really just scratched it this morning. God has righteously righteous believers through the atoning work of his son He displayed both his perfect love and his perfect wrath at the cross. How does God show mercy and not uh, leave the guilty unpunished? He does it through Jesus. That's the mystery of the Old Testament revealed in Christ. So, My question for you is this. Are you resting in Jesus? Or are you still about your, your good deeds? Please look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we can breathe when we read words like, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you all believe. I thank you for such mercy and grace. Lord, we pray today that there are those here this morning who do not know Christ, that you would pierce their hearts with conviction and reveal to them the goodness of your Son. Faith comes by hearing your word, Lord. We trust in that. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be all the more thankful for Jesus now. He has carried away every burden and load. We can rest because our sins have been taken away and righteousness has been credited to our account through your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Let's open our booklet. Song booklet. Number 29. What a great way to end the service this morning. Number 29 in the booklet. One of our favorites here at La Plata Baptist Church. Jesus, thank you. Number 29. Let's stand together and sing. Wait a second. I have moved ahead too ambitiously. I'm so eager to sing. Everybody sit back down. Please forgive me. What am I doing? I apologize. We're observing the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm just so eager to sing Jesus, thank you. I forgot. Sometimes I get too enthusiastic. All right. I think that's the first time in like almost 14 years that's happened. First time for everything. All right. We celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning because we recognize what Jesus did for us at Calvary's cross. He bore our sins as the sinless son of man, son of God, taking the judgment we deserved and was raised for our justification. And our great king, Jesus, intended this supper to be celebrated by local churches of baptized men and women who have placed their faith in the life, death, and resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. If you're not a member of this church, but are a member in good standing of a gospel preaching church, same gospel you heard me preach to you probably 15 different times this morning. It has to be that gospel. It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus alone. If you're a part of a gospel preaching church, we invite you to join us in this celebration. Because we're observing this in light of the gospel that we've heard proclaimed. As churches were planted and apostolic instruction was given to churches about observing the Lord's Supper, it is a church ordinance. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 to a church that was sinning and behaving you know, wildly and uh, behaving wickedly. <clears throat> they were approaching the Lord's Supper and communion as a church in the gospel in a way that denied the gospel. They were actually taking up arms against Jesus. He says, So, whenever you eat the bread or drinks the, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, Christian brothers and sisters, ask yourself, Am I content to remain, am I content to remain disobedient in some way? Are you hiding something that you need to bring into the light? Am I truly resting in Christ alone or am I touting my good record and resume? Am I walking in honest, accountable relationships to God's church? Some things to think about. I'd like to ask the members of the church to please stand at this time. This time it's right. (laughs) Members of the church, would you please stand? We're going to read the Church Covenant together. This is, uh, this is just a, uh, something we do practical. It's not legalistic or like we do it just to get up and say, "Hey, I'm still with Jesus. I still think Jesus is my only righteousness. I believe Jesus is my king, and I, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, intend to follow Him. So we are are telling people, witnesses in this room, we are Christians and we have covenanted together in Christ. Let's read it together. Having been led by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ, And by the aid of the Holy Spirit, commit to the following. We will walk together in Christian love, strive for the advancement of the church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, promote its spirituality and prosperity, sustain scriptural worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine, give the church sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin in our attendance, contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We also commit to maintain family and personal devotions, raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, seek the salvation of our family and friends, to be a careful witness in the world, being just in our dealings, avoiding all gossip, backbiting, and unrighteous anger, to abstain from anything that would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit, and be zealous in our efforts to maintain a testimony for the cause of Christ. We further commit to watch over one another in brotherly love, Remember each other in prayer, aid each other in sickness and distress, cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and speech, to be slow to take offense, being mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure reconciliation without delay. Moreover, we commit that when we move from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can live out the spirit of this covenant and the principles and practices of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let's take a minute and prepare our hearts. <clears throat> When we think of the perfect righteousness of Jesus, <clears throat> we are ashamed of our pitiful attempts, Lord, to uh, boast in our own righteousness. We have none. We have loads of unrighteousness, Lord. Even our good deeds, Lord, are tainted. Lord, too often unbelief and pride, and malice and lust, Lord, envy, Lord, have uh, have characterized Lord our hearts. Um. Or we ca- we even become com- uh, Lord so. Com- uh, Connected to it, Lord, it can be common to our own words and we don't realize it. Oh, Lord, we need you so much. We need help from above. And we, by grace, through faith, receive that Jesus is our help. He's our Savior, our righteousness. And the Holy Spirit has been given, Lord, to not only convict, but to give us new life. To grant us faith and repentance. And so, Lord, we uh, grieve by the ways we've sinned against you even this day. And, Lord, the burden of our sin is so intolerable. And it's only, Lord, um, re- Lord, relieved in Jesus the Son who shouldered every bit of our sins at Calvary, Lord, bearing our guilt and shame and the wrath that we deserve. So, Lord, we pray by your Spirit you would help us to walk in the newness of life. We believe that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.